keep in mind that for a lot of the reasons that people say that they're coming to Thailand, it doesn't make logical sense. I remember when I first came to Thailand on that trip, I decided I'd go meet with the head of the American Chamber of Commerce. And I told him, I, I went to the, their office and I said, what advice would you give to me, a young guy? I'm educated. I want to come to Thailand. He said, don't come. <laughs> and I was like, you bastard. I'm going to show this guy. And I know some of your listeners are going to say five years from now, Andrew Stotts, I remember that interview. I listened to that and I took it as a challenge. And look at me, I've been successful. Awesome. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok, the podcast about the people you meet in the city that makes a hard man crumble. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok. It's your host, Karsten. And before we start with today's episode, I want to tell you a little story about that startup I wanted to give a shot last year. Now, I really like numbers. And I thought, why is there not a Pinterest for spreadsheets? Like people who really, really, really like spreadsheets and um, want to save them and share them and comment on each other's spreadsheet. And I figured, hmm, what would be a good name for that? And I came up with O-Sheet. Now, it occurred to me that maybe not everybody likes spreadsheets as much as I do. But if there would be one person who would have been a guaranteed subscriber to that project... It would have been today's guest, Andrew Stotts. Andrew is one of the most successful entrepreneurs I have met in Thailand. He not only started a coffee roasting business that now supplies Starwood Hotels, McDonald's, McCafe, Dean and DeLuca, and lots of other high-end and well-known coffee brands and sellers in Thailand. He also used to be the head of the Chartered Financial Analyst Association of Thailand, has started his own masterclass, published several books and gets flown regularly to China to lecture on financial topics, including valuation of companies in China and elsewhere in the region and the world. And we all know that financial analysts are really, really good between the sheets. <sighs> yeah, I should stop those puns. Now... What is, however, true is that Andrew is a wizard at Microsoft Excel and everything it entails. And we travel to his home to find out how he managed to do so well for himself in Thailand. When I say we, I mean my co-host, Sidant and me. Sidant will be joining us in our interview with Andrew and we'll ask him some really good questions about the coffee business in Thailand. And I hope you will have as much fun as we did at this interview. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok. It's your host, Karsten. And today I'm here with my co-host, Sidant. Hello. I'm so uh, excited to be here. That's great. So, yeah. Sidant, you flew here from Mumbai. Yeah, just, uh, yeah, my arms are tired, as they say. Your arms? <laughs> it's an old uh, joke. Uh, I just flew in from Mumbai and my arms are tired. <laughs> <laughs> It'll work again one day. Jokes go in circles too, man. Yeah. <laughs> This is way funnier than it should be. And today we are here with uh, Andrew Stotts. Hello, Andrew. Hello. Andrew Stotts, PhD, right? That is correct. And we are recording this at Andrew's home where he has his own very private ping pong show. Is that right? <laughs> exactly. It's a Bangkok ping pong show with my mother. What? 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 <laughs> we have a ping pong robot. It sits on the end of the table and it fires ping pong balls at my 79-year-old mother who defenselessly hits them back. And she's been improving quite a bit. So it's a great rehab. Wait a second. Do you have a ping pong robot? Yeah. Doesn't, doesn't that like kind of violate labor laws in Thailand? Like <laughs> talk about AIs taking over jobs. It's a good point. It is definitely taking over someone's job, but it's doing a really consistent job of it. Right. Speaking of Thai labor laws. Um, you have been under them or with them for quite some time, right? Yes, 25 years. 25 years. <laughs> I have a saying about Thai labor law. Okay. And that is, you will never win against Thai labor law. As an employer. Correct. I can say, I don't have any case that we have won through the businesses I've been involved in, in a Thai labor law case. In fact, there was one 
where the guy had numerous violations. We had written him up. We had done all this. We finally pulled him aside and said, look, I'm going to give you a letter just to be nice, to tell you, I have all of these written violations that you've done. One more and we're going to fire you. And the guy wrecked our truck for my coffee business and he wrecked the truck and then we went back and said, we got to fire you. And the labor department ended up, he went to the labor department, labor department came out and said, well, you've got to give him some compensation. And we're like, unbelievable. And you said he can keep the truck? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good one. So, but you also were on the other side of that, right? I've been on both sides. I've been an employee, of course. Over the years, I was an employee at various investment banks. And then I've been an employer through my coffee business and through myself as a boss at those investment banks and then through my own advisory one. Wait a second, you were working for investment banks in Thailand? Correct. Thai banks? Uh, originally, I worked for Thai brokers in 1993. And then eventually over time, I worked for foreign banks and foreign institutions that were investment banks and brokers. They hired you? They definitely hired me. And of course, it was a golden time. 19, I came to Thailand in 1992. In 1993, I got into the stock market as an analyst. In my first four years in the stock, or sorry, first four months in the stock market, the stock market doubled in those four months and it hit its peak at 1789 for the set index. And then it proceeded to fall over four years down to 211 from almost 1800. So Yeah. That's the same stock index we have now here, right? Correct. And where is it now today? It's probably at 1,600. It still hasn't gotten back to where we were at our prior peak in 1993. Wow. It's a lesson, actually, a very important lesson for stock markets that when you go through a boom, a bust can last a long time. Of course, four or five years, it was a disaster after the 1997 crisis. But as far as a stock market recovering, that could take two or three decades. You plan for stuff like that in the sense that do you tell people, look, this is, uh, this is a bust coming and now we're stuck here. There's almost nobody, and very rarely do people call a bust. A lot of people who say they called a bust, but that was not the case. In fact, that's hindsight bias, one of the many biases that we have in the financial world. And hindsight bias basically says that you think you knew something in the past that you actually didn't know. I thought how it works is you have a hundred guys who say one thing and one of them is going to be right. And <laughs> probably 10 are going to be right. And then you just do that time. Wasn't there, this, isn't there this guy in Chiang Mai, Dr. Doom, Mark Farber? Correct. Mark Farber is uh, really a great, great guy. And he's been forecasting all around Asia for many years in Hong Kong and then later moved to Thailand. But a great guy, uh, he's, he's spoken at some of our events for CFA. And, uh, but he has one of the benefits of him is that he is, he's known as Dr. Gloom, right? Boom, doom, and gloom. So if you forecast negatively all the time, then you're going to be right eventually. And so there are some, and, and he's, he's predicted some stuff, but I think the, the most important thing I've learned in my years in the finance industry is that people disregard the fact that many of the outcomes that we see are coming out of randomness. If we take 100 people and ask them to predict something, probably 50 of them will get it right and 50 of them will get it wrong. So separating skill from randomness and the 50 that got it right, they'll attribute it to skill. And the 50 that got it wrong will attribute it to bad luck. Right. So how about what did you do? I mean, you were here. You were here in 1993. You maybe predicted or maybe did not know. Just did you pick the right oranges? <laughs> well, I think that When I started, I had studied finance. I was started working in finance, but I didn't have the depth of knowledge of living through many different crises. In fact, that's what you get after years of experience in the markets and in business. Uh, but So yeah. what was that like when you were here and just things went, well, to shit? <laughs> I mean, you were in the hardest hit, one of the hardest hit countries, one of the hardest hit professions. Like You were like, in a way, in the worst spot, professionally speaking, in that year. I was in the... The country where that 97 crisis happened, and I was working in the industry that that happened in. Basically, I remember July 3rd, I think it was, when the markets opened again after the end of the second quarter. I went into my company and I saw on the Bloomberg screen that the bot has just been floated. And the Bank of Thailand had admitted that they didn't have any money left to defend it. And basically, the Bank of Thailand had 40 billion US dollars 
to defend the bot at the end of the prior year. But within three months, by March of 1997, they had been run down to 8 billion US dollars. And by the time they got to June, the end of June, they were pretty much out. Now, they had actually later through investigations that seen it had been shown that they hadn't revealed the forward positions. And the forward positions would have shown that, in fact, they didn't have 40 billion. If you netted out their obligations that they had, they only had maybe five or 10 billion. So the point was, was that the government was out of money to protect the bot. The bot was at 25 to US dollar. And what happened was by the end of that year, it went to 56. So basically the value of the bot and Thai assets relative to the rest of the world fell by, you know, a 50% fall. And it was, it was massive. And so, I mean, I was, I was building my career in finance. I had already done pretty well in the first few years, but the year before that, we had just opened up Coffee Works, our coffee company between Dale and myself, my business partner. And all of a sudden, our dreams of being an entrepreneur in Thailand, I had a side hustle while I was working at an investment bank, just fell apart. What went through your head when you saw that Bloomberg message, Bad is getting floated? Well, the point is, is that when you're a newbie, as I was at that time, I was 29 years old or you know, 30 years old or so, I didn't have the depth of experience to know what it really meant. There was some people that knew, and there's you know people that knew. But for me, it was like, hmm... This could be bad, but nobody believed. In fact, if you look at the non-performing loans of the banking industry, which you read the newspapers these days and they're saying, oh, non-performing loans are rising to 3% or 4%. They peaked in that crisis at 55% of loans were bad. So that is the worst financial crisis, banking crisis in the world up until that point. I don't know if we've beaten that, if any country's beaten that, but it was basically... The banks were, it was a disaster. You, see, you seem very cheerful about that in hindsight. Well, it, what, what happened over a couple of months, and I'll tell you about kind of my worst moment in Thailand. In 1998, the company said, look, we're out of money. Here's what we can pay you. Please leave. There's nothing you can do. You can't ask them, well, I'm going to take the labor department, you know, and try to get more money from you because there is no more money gone. And basically, I lived at an apartment on Sukhumvit Soy 11 before it was a very popular soy. I lived in a house and Dale and my business partner and I just lived there. And we went to the landlords and I had enough wisdom to know that, hey, we're heading for a disaster. I told the landlord, please cut the rent that we pay by 50%. And Dale and I had agreed if they weren't going to cut it by 50%, we're moving out. And they said, no way, we're never going to do that. That house went vacant for about a year and a half. They would have been wise to have taken that offer, but they didn't. So Dale and I basically went to our coffee factory, which is basically south of Bangkok towards Gulf of Thailand. And we went to our factory. We took a small office and we took all the uh, furniture out of it. It was the accounting team's office. We put in two beds, just like a dorm room. And we lived in that factory. And we lived in that factory for about five or six months and all of our sales were gone. You know, we had some customers, but it was over. They're not going to order anything. Nobody has any money. So we just had to lock down our business, which we had just started. I remember Dale's father calling and saying, what the hell did you do with my investment? I put in a hundred. Now you're telling me it's only worth 50 just because of the currency. We said, we didn't do that. <laughs> but it was depressing and there's no sales that are going to come in at that time. And, and, there's nobody that's going to buy the assets that we set up for the business. So right. the side hustle became a real, real difficult thing. I mean, a factory, that's a bit, you know, when, when people now think they have a side hustle, you know, they might have a travel block or so. Wait, 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 your side hustle was actually building a factory. What was actually the product of the factory? What were you doing there? What did you do on your side while having this, you know, low stress job of being an investment banker? Yeah. So basically, Dale came to visit me from Japan. He was studying and, and was is fluent in Japanese. And he, we saw that it's terrible coffee in Bangkok. Everybody drinks instant coffee. And so we thought, look at all these office buildings. Look at this. We're going to start an office coffee business where we supply coffee to the offices. We went to a bunch of coffee companies, roasters, and eventually we couldn't find any that would produce what we wanted in the format that we wanted. So Dale said, why don't we just start up a roasting company? He went to America, looked at a bunch of different roasting machines, and we shipped one here. That roasting machine became the heart of our business with, let's say, 10 or 15 employees operating the roasting machine, the packaging, and then delivery service sales. And that was our little factory that we had at that time. 
in 2012, we finally moved that. So we started that in 1996. We started sales and we moved from that factory to a new one in 2012. So now we have a modern factory that just like any factory you walk into, it's uh, big and got a lot of space and we're doing a lot of coffee How roasting. How many people work in that factory now? So now we have about a hundred people. So the side hassle became the side hustle. It was definitely almost a disaster. And I, uh, one thing I learned, a lesson I learned about, about business is that business is all about trust. And we don't think about that a lot when we're doing business. We just think, yeah, you know, okay, I'll give you credit and you give me credit. And, and then also, you know, when you're investing in a business, you're trusting that the person that's running it is going to take care of your interest, not just theirs. And what I learned and I observed Dale and Dale and I actually were friends. We've known each other since we were about 14. We grew up in a small town called Hudson, Ohio. And that's where we originally knew each other. We've kept our relationship and friendship over those years. And so then we did business here when he was in Asia. But what I watched Dale trudge through this very, very painful time and not take advantage of anybody, not selfishly do anything from a selfish perspective, but do what he could to keep the business alive. I decided I would put any money behind him that I possibly could because he was an honest, trustworthy and honorable guy. And he just kept going. I mean, I remember I kept telling him, we can shut it down. He's like, I can't talk about that. I can't let my mind go there. We've got to move forward. So that was the state that we were in at that time. But what happened is that it just was a disaster. We're living in this. So if you can just imagine the days, you know, these tropical storms that come in and you can just smell the moisture in the air. And then this crushing storm comes in. Dale and I were sitting on a Sunday in our little dorm room in the factory and we're sitting on two beds across from each other and my phone rings. And it's my sister, my oldest sister, Kelly. And she said, my cancer has come back. She was in America. And the doctor said, I have a month to live. Can you come home to see me now? And at that moment, you can feel it in my voice right now. At that moment, I said, absolutely. I hung up the phone and I looked at Dale and we just both started just crying. It's like, here we are in a strange country. We didn't know what we were doing. We'd never done business before. And here we're facing the toughest financial crisis ever. And then my sister calls to say she's dying. I managed to get on a plane, get back. And within a week, she had passed. And then I came back to Thailand. Dale decided we got to get out of the factory and move to a little place. We got a condo right across or our apartment right across from the factory. And then we started to kind of rebuild not only the business, but our psyche. You clearly had some reservations about continuing, but did you put a time period on it at all? Or did you just get inspired by your friends so that you just dropped it? So I'll tell you the thought process. And I think anybody who's doing a business is going to come to this point, unless they're just really lucky or really successful, is that you're going to make a decision. Am I really committed to this? And the decision for us was simple because what we said is, are we doing something that's like something really crazy where we got to convince the market of this new app or this new tech or something? No, we're roasting coffee. People are going to drink coffee. So our first part of the decision process was saying, we're not doing something out of the ordinary, so therefore it should work. The next question is, are we idiots? Do we have the competency to do this? You know, we had a lot of questions about that at that time because of where we were. Of course, a lot of it had to do with the environment and all that, but we made a lot of mistakes along the way. There's a great book I would recommend. It's not published much anymore. I've seen secondhand copies on uh, Amazon. It's guy, by a guy named Sutton. I can't remember his first name now, but it's called Turnaround. And I got that book and I, I underlined so much in that book. And I love the opening part of that book. He said, I'm the turnaround guy. Nice to meet you. When I come, you leave because I can do what you can't do because you're emotionally attached to it. Bye-bye. And that was the point I sat down with all of our team. We sat down on the floor. I can still remember in a little circle with a little bit of management team that we had. And I said, I found this book. And the question is, can we do this? And eventually the team said, we can do it. And what I learned from that book is, you know, the number one thing that you control is your cost. So that's the thing you've got to cut immediately. And so we became pretty aggressive on cost control at the time. And generally coffee as well. You're right. It's coffee. Everyone drinks it. But- I mean, it, it didn't matter what coffee we drank in Thailand, right? That's what people were thinking. Did you have to go around and say, hey, this is the actual good stuff, like some pusher, like, you know, yeah. come on, get into this. This is going to improve productivity, you know, make you feel yeah. skippy in the morning. We were about 10 years early, right? 
if we had started 10 years later, we wouldn't have to have faced so much challenge and education. We don't have the budget like a big coffee company has to educate the population. So we did the best that we could, but it was very, very hard. You know, uh, basically if you take the, some of the best coffee in the world, a Kenya, a Colombia, and you, you make a great cup of coffee and you put it in front of a person in Asia in general, and they drink it, they'll say, that's terrible. And the reason why is because they're used to putting in cream and sugar into it. So and milk, let's not yeah, forget. Yeah, yeah, milk, cream, sugar. And then next thing you know, it's tea. Yeah, I mean, that's how I first reacted when I drank coffee. I was like, what is this? This is terrible. <laughs> and and yeah, that's what I wanted to know. How, how was it like? So did you sort of approach a community of people? Like, did you go to an office building? Just you know, be like, let's convince them building by building, maybe. Maybe not everyone on the street, but at least the guys that, who come to work every day have them buy into the... Well, we had to try to find people that were drinking it already. And so we went to offices, we went to American companies, foreign companies, Japanese companies. We also looked for companies that were operating on a 24-hour schedule. And so factories and facilities that were on 24-hour schedules. So we tried to find customers like that. And Dale always talks about our, you know, these days they have something called MVP, minimum viable product. And Dale always says, before we had a name for it, we once delivered coffee in a Ziploc bag with a handwritten sticker on it. And Dale delivered that coffee in a box of that as our MVP. <laughs> so were you salesmen? Dale was more of a salesman than I was. I mean, I, I'm finance, accounting, operations, strategy, those types of things. But Dale was the guy that was out there selling all the time. And he is, he's basically been out there selling up to today. Okay. I know someone who's running, uh, who used to run an e-commerce company and they had a founding team. And one person on the team was this guy from a very prestigious finance firm. And I asked him, what is he doing? Oh, he's doing the number thing. Like your advertising? No, no, just numbers. He just like does metrics and stuff. Like you have an entire person on your management team that does just that. Like, does he add really that much value looking like at your, I don't know, financial statement like you were the finance guy you are the finance guy you've written books yeah, yeah. you're giving seminars you're teaching lecturing at universities yeah. you publish yeah. a lot of material about that what was your value added that you brought to the coffee business well i think that the the first thing i mean um what i tell students in finance is important thing to remember about finance is finance adds no value how so i mean this seems counterintuitive to me particularly to finance students. Okay. Yeah. Right? Uh, what I try to explain is in a, in a business, the finance aspect, okay, we can think of uh, three parts of a business when it comes to numbers. The first part is what we would call bookkeeping, keeping a record, having transactions written down. The second part is called accounting, where we accumulate that and we count that and we bring that into some sort of order. Those orders are financial statements. And then you move to the next level, which is finance. And finance is looking at all of those different things and coming up with conclusions and ways of thinking about the business. Now, the fatal flaw that I had in the beginning stage was that I'm so excited about finance. It's such a thrilling topic for me. So many different ratios, so many different things that I stumble upon and I dig into. And then like, I'm, I'm telling Dale, look at this. Look at this spreadsheet. Yeah, and look at this one number. And look at, I've looked at five different coffee companies around the world. And here's what I found about... Now, Dale wanted to become a finance, you know, a very knowledgeable in finance. So he was interested. Uh, just for the record, uh, Andrew is doing air quotes. Yeah, <laughs> Dale, yeah, air quotes. He wanted to become a finance expert. But the point is, is that in order to be really successful in business, you need a team. And in order to be financially successful, the team's got to make good financial decisions. Most teams probably don't make great financial decisions. And so what I was able to do eventually was design a very simple system. I call it world-class benchmarking. And it's a way that I look at our coffee business relative to about 500 similar businesses across the world. And then I rank and score our business. So it's a scorecard from one to 10. And therefore I found that I could use that scorecard to communicate to the whole management team. Are we a one or a two or are we are nine or a 10? If we're a one or a two, we're going to get great bonuses. Things are going well. If we're a nine or 10, things aren't going well. And they know it immediately. So my end conclusion was I advised Dale and other businesses with a one-page financial document 
every month or every three months, depending. And that document has no financial ratios on it. So it's what you communicate, what you communicate rather than the numbers themselves that sort of put the exclamation point on finance as a adding value. Yeah. So nobody's ever talked about the finance aspect of Apple when they're buying an Apple product as an example or any product. What they're always looking at is the product, the service, the solution that it provides them. So value in a business comes from the product and the service. That's it. And it comes also from, I like to say that revenue is proof of concept. Profit is proof of competence. So that means that you can organize and lead the team in a profitable, to reach the customers and in a profitable way. And so what I say is that finance is a mirror for business decisions and business managers to be able to look at a mirror and say, you said that this is going to improve such and such. Now here's the mirror. How does it look? Did it happen? That's not adding value. That's reflecting the results of managerial actions. And that's the way I think of finance when I think of finance in a business. What about countries? Because you have talked to the one other government person here, right? Mm. You were advising the finance minister of Thailand? Yeah, well, I, I happen to live, I live next to this guy. And one day I didn't know him and I walked up to him and I said, hi, and he asked me what I do. And I said, well, I'm a financial analyst. And he says, well, what kind of stuff are you writing? And I said, oh, I've been writing something about the Thai economy, blah, blah, blah. And basically he said, well, can you show it to me? And I walked over and I got it and I walked over to him and I showed it to him and he looked at it and he said, explain it to me. And I explained what I was showing him about the condition of the Thai economy at the time in the stock market, which was a pretty negative view about 1996. And he asked me, are you free this afternoon? And I said, uh, here's a strange guy I live next to. So asked me, I said, yeah, why? He says, I want you to meet the finance minister. And I said, uh, okay. And then he called, he said, hold on. He called the finance minister and the finance minister said, I'm in a parliamentary session now, but I'm free tomorrow at 10. The next day at 10 AM, I met the finance minister and I presented this research. So that's kind of the way things go. How old Thailand. were you then? I was 30 you know, 30 years old or something like that. And, you know, a few years under my belt as an analyst, but nothing spectacular. I wasn't afraid to speak out about what I saw. I think that was probably what stood out. My neighbor turned out to be a great friend over the years and had a very successful career moving all the way up to the permanent secretary at Ministry of Finance, but is someone that I consider like a father figure in Thailand who's helped me and supported me throughout all the years. But that is where our relationship started. So that was a pretty cool one. So one of our previous guests, uh, Jake Needham, the novelist, was talking about in Thailand, wealth is often just the accident of owning the right piece of land. In your case, it seems like the accident of having the right neighbor played a big role in, you know, getting access. What, what is the what is the takeaway lesson there? Like, what do you like if someone else would come to Thailand now and would like want to make a career, start a business invest, like what are the lessons like? What is something that is reproducible that you can tell them? And I don't know, talk to your neighbors? Or? I think that the first thing is that uh, it's very hard to be successful in a foreign country if you don't try to get into that environment. So I tried to study Thai as best that I could at that time. Um, I tried to be open to the, I mean, I came to Thailand not to work in finance. I came just because I thought this is an amazing place and I, I wonder if I could survive here. And so I just had a passion for the country and the, uh, the culture and the people. And I think that my, my first advice is be open in that way. I've seen so many people come to Thailand and they think they're open, but in fact, they're not at all. And so locals will feel that. And so they're not going to want to bring you into what they're doing. But if they feel like you're an honest, honorable person with a respect for them and their culture, then they're going to bring you into all kinds of interesting things. And so I think that's my first piece of advice. The second piece of advice is that um, when you come to a foreign country, think about what they can't do. It's very hard because of the hierarchical system in Thailand that somebody's going to be at 30 years old and stand out and make a really strong statement about that. Now, you don't have to offend everybody, but you have the ability to do something different, to make a strong stand on something. And that's what I saw. And so I differentiated myself by having a strong opinion and supporting it with facts and evidence. And I think that helped me to stand out at the time. And how much of that was luck? Thailand was growing at 12% a year over that period of time. It was amazing, fantastic. But 
of course, I looked around the world and I decided to come to Thailand. So I think that luck is always there. It's hard to ask somebody to make a judgment about uh, whether they were lucky or successful, because all of us think that a lesson I learned when I was a, a manager at Pepsi many, many years ago in America was that every person generally thinks that they work really, really hard. So everybody actually thinks that they do. Some may and some may not, but everybody thinks that they do. And so we tend to have behavioral biases that may help us or hurt us from being able to think about whether something was from luck or not. So I'd say it was from skill. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to ask, do you believe in luck at all? I mean, a lot of people just don't believe luck. In well, luck I work in the stock market over all my career. So the stock market is all about randomness. In fact, what I show my students is I show them all these stock price charts and ask them to say, would you buy, would you sell? The trick that they didn't realize was that they were all created randomly. So I can create stock price charts that look exactly like stock price charts that you can see out in the market, but they're all basically by doing an Excel spreadsheet that just does a either a minus one, a zero, or a plus one, meaning a stock goes up, it goes down, or it stays the same, and then randomize that, copy that down a thousand times, and you can plot a line that look exactly like a stock. So I think that what we see is there's a normal distribution throughout most of the world and most of life. In the finance world, that normal distribution is there all the time. So yes, there are people that are beating the market, like Warren Buffett, as an example, has beat the market for many, many years. But I can tell you that statistically, there is a possibility that some people will beat the market for years and years and years. Very clear that there will be. So the question that you have to ask yourself is, did Warren Buffett beat the market by skill or by luck? And in the academic world, where I do a lot of finance work in, in the academic sphere, there's a whole thing about the false assumption that that was skill-based when in fact it was just luck. So tell me more about your students. So what, how is it that you, what is your uh, role now as a professor? You have an online sort of course. So when I came to Thailand, I was a finance lecturer at university. My first year was as a faculty member at the University of Thai Chamber of Commerce. And basically I started teaching finance at that time and I didn't work in the finance industry. I didn't know much about it. But then I got a job after a year as an analyst at a broker. Now, I just kept teaching over that time, but not full time. So I've taught finance for 25 years now, and I just love to teach it. I love the subject. But I, one time I was standing in front of a class of about 14 students at a very prestigious university, and I was teaching the subject, and I just thought, 14 kids? And I'm making a huge salary and making, having a lot of financial success and I'm communicating with 14, I thought, I got to make it bigger. So how do you value a stock? How do you value any stock in the world? I took that concept and I turned it into what I call the Valuation Masterclass. It's a 100% online course through my own, I have a blog that's called becomeabetterinvestor.net. And Become a Better Investor is where I post that and, and show that. But then I have, right now I have about 200 students from around Asia mainly, where I do an online course and teach them over a yeah, it takes 200 hours if you want to get to level five. It's pretty tough. But level one, level two, level three, takes someone from zero to starting to be able to value companies. So I've channeled almost all my work for teaching for valuation into that either live or I do it online. Wow. So is this Asia specific or are these lessons you can just apply to any market around the world? You can apply it to any market. I mean, really the value of an asset is based upon the similar principles but I try to focus it a lot on Asia. So a lot of the examples I'm looking at, I mean, there's, there is a shock wave that is about to hit the world over the next, let's say, three to five years in the financial markets, and that is China. Up until this point, China has not opened its local stock market, except to allow Chinese, some Chinese companies to list in Hong Kong. But recently, the indices, the, the world of finance has allowed them to become part of what we call the emerging market index. And we've taken a tiny amount of stocks, 200 stocks from China and said, okay, we'll include those. Now that means a guy sitting in New York that's managing an emerging markets portfolio now all of a sudden has to consider those 200 stocks. But keep in mind that China has 3,300 stocks listed in the stock market. And over the next three to five years, those 3,000 stocks are gonna be available globally and when that happens, money from places like Thailand and other markets are going to be sucked into the Chinese market as people will have to allocate to China. Wow. It's good for the Chinese stock market. As that money comes in, the market generally will go up. But it's really difficult 
for foreigners that aren't used to China. So my valuation masterclass, a lot of what I'm doing is focusing on valuing Chinese companies. Now I look across all of the world and Asia, Thailand, all the places, but I see a real big opportunity for me in, you know, mastering China for the foreigner who doesn't know about investing in China. And just generally for people who are interested at what sort of, what sort of training or background do you have to have to start at the base level of your online classes here? For my class, I try to start it because it's a five-level course and it's 200 hours. I'm willing to take someone that has no background. Okay. So someone like me, I have, I have absolutely no financial training. I'll sign you up. I'm ready. <laughs> the only point that you, I do require is you have to have a real passion to learn about valuation because it, you know, it's tough. You're going to have to go through a lot of examples. Valuation means you know how much is the company is worth, right? Correct. Now, what's really, you know, if I talk to people in advising private individuals right now, the most common advice is oh, just get some index fund, you know, I don't know, world index fund, just something that, you yeah. know, kind of imitates the entire market. In fact, I did hear a free economics podcast where they interviewed uh, various American investment analysts as well. And they're like, the safest thing for the general public to invest in is index funds. Terrible advice. Terrible advice. Now, I happen to write a book about it. Oh, yeah. That's this book, How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market. But this book I wrote for my five nieces who live in America. Oh, yeah. This okay. book is not for Asia. Why is it that that advice is bad in Asia? Let's just take someone, the average person in the Philippines, and you tell them, hey, just buy a low-cost ETF. There are no low-cost ETFs. There are no low-cost ETFs in many of the markets around Asia. And also, if you say, well, wait a minute, so I'm going to buy a low-cost ETF for the country I live in, the Philippines, Thailand. In the US, it makes sense. You've got thousands of stocks and it's a very diversified market generating income from around the world. But for Asia, it's not an easily usable advice. Then you could say, well, buy a, an actively managed fund, but sometimes those can be super expensive in Asia. But then if you tell people, oh, well, then buy your own stocks. Oh, well, that's, that's just that's the worst terrible advice. advice. Yeah. <laughs> that's a disaster advice. Give us a juicy freebie here. How do you invest in <laughs> Thailand? So I think that the first thing is, I'll tell you about some of the academic research that I did. And one of the academic papers that I did was just to look at the question and try to answer the question, how many stocks should you own? When I talk to individuals, and this is important for your listeners, I ask individuals, how many stocks do you own? For the people that invest in the market, how many, on average, they say two or three. That's like driving down the freeway at 150 kilometers per hour with no seatbelt on. Right. Especially in Germany, they would ask you, why are you going so slow? Yes, exactly. <laughs> You'll be rammed from behind. But what I'm saying is that what I've done all my work on, the, the balance between risk and return, it's 10 stocks. So my advice to your listeners not right now who are investing in the stock market. In, in Thailand. In, in Thailand and anywhere. Own no less and no more than 10 stocks. 10 is the magic number. 10 is the magic number from my academic research. If you're picking stocks. The second, I'm going to give you two pieces of advice. This first one is the number of stocks to hold in the portfolio. The second one I'm going to give you is what are you going to do when that stock goes down? So I want you to predetermine your action for when it goes bad. And I want you to think about buying a stock at a certain price. And if it goes down by, let's say, 25%, you're just going to sell it. Now, 25% seems like already a lot of loss. But the point is I've done a lot of testing over the years and I would say 20 to 25% is the magic number where if you own 10 stocks and let's say you hold them for one year and you reconsider them at the end of the year, think about maybe replacing this one or that one and then rebalancing into 10 new stocks or adjusting that, you will equal weight those stocks, 10% each. So you have to sell some of the ones that went up and buy some of the ones that went down. And then the next thing you do is that if any of those stocks, let's say you bought it at 100 at the beginning of the year, if it went down to 75 or maybe 80, you'd say, I'll sell it, I'll hold cash, wait to the end of the year, and then rebalance. So that would be my advice for the people who are already picking stocks. For the people who are not picking stocks, well, it gets a little bit more complicated, but that's at least for the people who are already owning stocks. So that's a lot of information already. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm trying to think like in yeah. the Thai market, what 10 stocks? I mean, that kind of is already an index there. Like what is it, the SAT 50? Yeah. So. Uh, the, the set 50 covers top 50 companies. You got the set 100 that covers 100. There's about 500 possible investment options that you could have, particularly as an individual, because you could buy smaller stocks. 
if you have a billion dollars, you're not going to be able to buy a lot of those stocks. But as an individual, you probably have 400 to 500 stocks that you could buy in Thailand. And do you think there is an issue with potentially being a lot of insider trading? Because you always assume, you know, maybe there will be some investors who have access to information in a way that would be illegal elsewhere. Well, I have some opinions about this. The first thing is when people talk to me about insider information, which a lot of people over my career will tell me, hey, psst, come here. I got some inside information on this. 99% of the time, they do not have inside information. To think about inside information, it means that the owners of the company have violated their obligation to keep information confidential. They've taken it out, violated their obligation, and they've given that information to you. You know, well, so if it would be me, that would be, I guess, not an issue for me as an investor. But what I'm worried about is... You know, are there people in public listed companies that might do things in their own financial interest? The next part is that insider trading is illegal in Thailand. Right. So if you know somebody or you see something, you can report that to the SEC and they will investigate it. Corruption all, is also illegal in Thailand. Corruption is illegal and you can get in trouble for it, right? In the case of the stock market, the regulator has been a lot tougher in these days and they have better tools at their disposal to deal with inside information and insider trading. And it's not that difficult to see in the stock market, right? Because you can see activity of some stocks being pushed up. Every single account that's out there has a name on it. They can investigate and try to understand it. But yeah, inside trading happens everywhere in the world, but it's not the way that I've based my investment and it's not something that I've had to worry about too much. And I don't think about it too much. I think the harder part of it investing is finding the right stocks to buy. What 10 stocks are you gonna buy? So from your own experience, what's harder in Thailand, being an entrepreneur or being an investor? Well, in both cases, things are stacked against you. But in the case of investing, I would say piece of advice, if, if you're a foreigner coming to Thailand or you're mate, you have money outside, do not bring your money into Thailand. Kind of hard to invest without money. Well, the point is, is that you have a very restricted market here, just like most emerging markets around Asia restrictions related to the currency and the amount of money you can easily quickly move in and out, and also restrictions related to the markets and also a less developed market such as Thailand compared to Singapore or Hong Kong means much higher fees, much less sophisticated products, much worse distribution of products. So generally I would say is that if you had a million bucks, you don't want to move it into Thailand. You've just moved in a very restricted market. It would be better to keep that money in Singapore or Hong Kong or Switzerland or wherever you have that money and do your investment. If you want to invest in something in Thailand, invest through your investment bank or your broker and say, hey, buy these stocks in Thailand. And let if you're going to own 10 stocks and you want two of them to be Thai, because that brings us to another real big issue, which is called a home country bias. Everybody invests in their home country, even though well, let's just say that the Thai market was the worst, is going to be the worst in the world for the next five years. All the advice that I could give you about, hey, own 10 stocks and this is how you manage risk, it's just like changing seats on the Titanic. So what I always also like to say is that if you move your money into Thailand or you're investing with your money in Thailand, your ability to invest outside of Thailand is very limited and you can do it, but the fees are really high. But if you have an account in your home country, in Switzerland, in Hong Kong, in Singapore, your ability to invest globally is, is much better. Well, Andrew, if we flip that around, what if your home country is also a restricted market? and you come to Thailand because it's kind of a leg up in a way, what would your advice be then? Would it be bring it in or would it be play it safe still? Well, I'd stick with my advice. Don't bring, I mean, first of all, if your country is restrictive, you're going to have troubles getting your money out of your country. So it's already going to be hard. But if you're going to get your money out of your country, you don't want to bring it into another country that has a lot of restrictions. So if you're from India, as an example, a lot of Indian businessmen have their money in Singapore or Hong Kong or other places because that's less restriction. Yeah. I mean, that's the point. You get out of India anyway to put it somewhere else. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. that makes a lot of, that's a practical advice for both, both sides of the coin, I guess. Yeah. So how did you actually arrive in Thailand? Like what's the, what's the resume? What's the, what's that, the Eureka moment, I guess. Also, yeah. like when was it Thailand? That's the one. In 1989, I set up a trip. I just graduated with a bachelor's degree in finance. I had gotten a job offer from Pepsi in Los Angeles. So I had a month off and I decided I'm going to travel around Asia. I had lived in Long Beach. Long Beach is the largest population of Cambodians outside of Cambodia, 440,000 uh, 40, out of 400,000 in the uh, city, of, so 10% of the population. 
And I had dated a Cambodian woman while I was in university. So I studied everything I possibly could about Cambodia. And I learned, I read many books. I got to know her family. I was very interested in the culture of Cambodia. And so in 1989, I set up a tour. I was going to go to Japan, Cambodia, and Hong Kong. But then I really reconsidered. In 1989, I just felt like Cambodia wasn't the place uh, from a safety perspective, but also a business perspective. And Thailand is right next door with a lot of similarities in language and culture and stuff. So I came to Thailand. I came to Thailand. I went to Japan first. I was very interested in Japan, but it's a really tough country to penetrate in one week. <laughs> so as a tourist, it almost felt like you're looking through a looking glass at the people right in front of you. Whereas in Thailand, you walk off the plane and it's like, hey, you, hey, come here. Do you want to ride or whatever? So although it's kind of a false sense of welcoming, the point is I became enamored with Thailand. Then in 1989 was also the uh, Tiananmen Square thing that was happening in China. So all of a sudden, Hong Kong, they had a massive protest. So I ended up extending my time in Thailand to two weeks. By the end of two weeks, I was sold. I went back to the US, finished my MBA, worked for three years, did my MBA. Well, wait, that's, that's not quite sold. Like if you go back and you work three years, like... I mean, I guess this is Andrew's planning as well. He probably thought to himself, you know what I'm going to need? I'm going to need all the money I could get to bring it in. Right? Yeah, well, actually, it was just that uh, I had just had a great job offer at Pepsi, and I really saw a possibility of a great career. I wasn't sure I could come with Pepsi, maybe, right? Yeah. I had a lot of different thoughts in my mind, and I also uh, had wanted to do my MBA because I, I just wanted to get it done and have the credibility of that. So I still had that in my mind to get those things done. And I thought I would be more valuable coming, you know, to Asia anyways, if I had gotten that done. Okay. Now that you're, you have this background in Pepsi and Pepsi used to consider Thailand as a strategic market, but because it was one of the few countries in the world where they were outselling Coca-Cola. Correct. And then something funny happened, right? They lost it all, basically. And basically they... Well, what happened? What happened there? Like... For someone who's never been to Thailand or has yeah, I'm, seen I'm, that. I'm, I'm waiting to hear this one. Yeah. Well, okay. well, basically, Pepsi had a great relationship with the bottler here. The bottler. Yeah. The company so that. The, the company, Sermsook, that did all the, the distribution, the sales. And basically, Pepsi's business is selling barrels of concentrate, which is just the stuff that's the, the secret sauce, literally, that goes into Pepsi. The bottler at the local location gets the water and gets all the different ingredients and then puts that in, mixes it, and then distributes that. And so they had a great relationship and all that. But at, at one point, the bottler wanted to bring in some other products. And Pepsi said, no, that's against our agreement. Well, Pepsi, the market for the cola drinks was a bit tough at the time. And they felt like that was unfair. And so they went back and forth. And then eventually what happened is that the bottler ended up splitting from Pepsi and setting up their own brand. So in Thailand, we have something called Est that's a like a Pepsi knockoff. Right. So basically, the kind of the factory for Pepsi, it's like the H&M factory yeah. in China yeah. says, you know what, I think we want to make some other clothes. And then H&M says, no. And they're like, you know what, we'll create our own brand and we'll just yeah. sell it ourselves in the malls. And then, of course, probably they said, yeah, right, that's going to happen. And that happened. And it happened. <laughs> well, there's a big difference of what happened at that time. And, and when I first came to Thailand, uh, it has to do with distribution systems. In the old days, the distribution systems was owned by the company. So Pepsi had trucks, like we're used to seeing all these trucks going around. But something changed, and that was modern trade. Now, if I want to launch a product such as a green tea drink, right, I can distribute that through modern trade, meaning the big stores, the 7-Elevens. I can have 8,000 7-Elevens around Asia or around Thailand that can distribute my product instantly. So we had something called Oishi, which was a green tea drink that was the first company that really capitalized on the concept of modern trade and being able to just outsource the manufacturing, get the product, distribute it out. So it really it changed the whole model. And so all of a sudden, at that time, the distribution network of having all these trucks and the relationships with all of these companies was massive. So basically, the bottler could block Pepsi from getting access you know, for a period of time. But now that would be much more difficult. So what is the result of that? Like The bottler said, we made our own Pepsi. Yep. And they started selling it. And they basically split. They had a big um, lawsuit that went on. And then eventually Pepsi has to find another way 
to do bottling and find another partner and find a whole nother way of doing it, which eventually they did and now they exist, but they're competing against their prior bottler who's got their own brand that looks a bit like Pepsi, tastes a bit like Pepsi. And Coke's over here now as well. Well, they've always been here and they just see, saw a great opportunity there. Yeah, <laughs> like, that was like a free shot for them. That was a, yeah. Like a, yeah. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so what, was, what do you know what the market share now is, by the way? Uh, I don't know what they are right now. I haven't seen it in a long okay. time. I think when, I, when you go into a convenience store here, the Pepsi knockoff and the Pepsi are pretty much get equal shelf space. So you know, whatever that yeah. may mean in this case. But yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting thing because you have like, I think Carlsberg had uh, a very big thing here as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know as much of the detail on that one, but I've seen a lot of cases where one of the phone operators had done a partnership with a foreign phone company and that foreign phone company invested about a total of about $400 million dollars. And basically the whole thing went sour and they ended their contract and the local Thai company paid a ceremonial one bot for that foreign entity to exit the situation. So I've seen a lot of cases. Of course, China is also very interesting where they'll actually say to you, um, we will take and you must give us your intellectual property if you want to do business in our country when they did the bidding for trains and things like that. So there are other places in Thailand that even have it more leverage, but in Thailand, you know, in Asia that have more leverage, but in Thailand, I've just seen a lot of different cases. Like the, 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 this is, a lot of this stuff is pretty similar. Like these stories exist, I mean, all over, yeah. especially the cola ones. I think that around that time, everybody has that happening because, you know, they wanted to go and do new stuff and new markets and everyone had their own problems. Somehow Coca-Cola managed to, recover quite fast and Pepsi didn't. So all these all these foreign large scale investments, we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. I mean, are they stupid? Are they what what's what what went wrong? Like what do you think Can they you just what, what were their mistakes? Well, okay, let me ask you a question. Every day there's young couples and older couples that are breaking up from their relationships. Are they stupid? No. When they went into the relationship, everything seemed okay but then something went wrong. And the relationships that stayed together were because the parties involved decided to work it out. But once it gets to a point, well, and I think that what happens is that the laws within Thailand are going to favor Thai companies. So if things go wrong, they're going to have leverage over the foreign entity. And the foreign entity probably doesn't think about this. And then all of a sudden they find themselves in a situation where they have a lot less leverage than what they thought. So what's your advice for the Coca-Cola managers and... First piece of advice is um, Thailand, generally the law is, is that you can only own 49% of a company. The Thai partner has to own 51%. The first idea is get around that. And the way you get around that is trying to get board of investment privileges or other type of government privileges that will allow you to own 100%. In the case of Americans, Americans are allowed to own 100% of a company under a treaty between America and Thailand. So we set up our coffee business through that many, many years ago. So you own your company 100%? 100%, yeah, between Dale and myself that and MET some other. Treat, treaty, MET right? treaty, correct. Is that still in place? It's still in place. But that's exclusively between America and Thailand. Yes. So Carsten can't open his dream coffee company and own it fully now. No. Now, there are ways, there's many ways that people will help you to get around that, but all of those ways are generally illegal. So when the government decides to crack down on those ways, then, you know, you're going to have potentially problems. So... Basically, the first thing is, if you're a big entity, a big company, try to get 100%. If you're not, think very carefully about your partner and watch their past behavior. A lot of people hire, for instance, private detectives that will do a lot of background checks on people that you're considering to partner with so you understand the lawsuits that are outstanding and all the different issues. Go in with your eyes wide open, but ultimately you know, make a successful business and hopefully the two of you can both benefit from it, but it, it isn't easy. Which of the well conglomerates or in Thailand is like family owned or a lot of family controlled enterprises do you think have a particularly good track record in not messing with their foreign partners? No comment. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all saw that one coming. <laughs> it just, it, all of those things really depend on the whole situation and both sides have their arguments. So I won't get into that. All right. So what are some other things you'd say, okay, if you come to Thailand, maybe you came here when you were in your early 20s. And I talked to a lot of people who are trying to 
especially since the you know more recent financial crisis, I see more and more young people who are looking for opportunities in Thailand, like trying to so, maybe so even my, have a career. I'm going to just sum it up. Don't come to Thailand. Why do I say that? I mean, the point is, is that, okay, why are you coming to Thailand? Now, if you're coming to Thailand to study Buddhism, boom, you've come to the right place. But if you're coming to Thailand to start a business, well, you're already coming to a country where you can only own 49% of a business. That sucks already right there. More than half of the profit that you make is going to go to somebody else. Okay, next reason. So you say, oh, no, but I got a great business idea and it's going to be a lot of people are going to, wait a minute, sorry. So you're going to sell your product in Thailand. It's a tiny market. It's, it's a developing country that doesn't have a lot of people with a lot of money. Go to Singapore, go to Hong Kong, go to Korea, go to Germany, go to China. Why would you come to Thailand to start a product? Now, of course, someone could say, well, I love Thai culture and all that. That's cool. Come for that. But also, you know that, okay, if you say, okay, I want to build a career in investment banking, I want to build a career in such and such. It's not a great opportunity here. Singapore, Hong Kong, other countries. Yeah. So I would say you really want to have your eyes wide open. I've seen so many people that just love Thailand and say, how can I come here? And I'm like, depending on what you're looking for, if you're like, I want to do business, I would say there's a lot of great places around the world. Now, if you say, okay, I want to do outsource where I am working with Thai people to provide products for people outside. Well, wait a minute. First of all, you could go to the Philippines where lang English language is, is second nature, right? The second thing is that what's the unemployment rate in Thailand? For the last five years, it's been less than 1%. Every single person who wants a job in this country has it. So a barrier to entry when you come to Thailand is the existing companies already have all their employees. Now you're going to have to find people in extremely tough market for employees and hiring employees. There's a lot of reasons why I think you should think twice. Now, I don't want someone to say, because I remember when I came to Thailand. Kind of seems to have worked out for you though. It worked out for me. And I worked, I basically came and I took an 80% pay cut and I went and worked in a university and taught finance. There's a place for teaching in Thailand. So yes, if you want to teach, there's a place for that. If you want to do some other things, you know, whatever those things are, there's places for it. And then I decided that I'm going to try it. Just like I know, I know your listeners aren't going to listen to what I just said. They're going to say, not me. I'm going to do it. I'm going to make, I'm, I'm okay with that. Do it. But I'm just telling you, keep in mind that for a lot of the reasons that people say that they're coming to Thailand, it doesn't make logical sense. I remember when I first came to Thailand on that trip, I decided I'd go meet with the head of the American Chamber of Commerce. And I told him, I, I went to the, their office and I said, what advice would you give to me? A young guy, I'm educated. I want to come to Thailand. He said, don't come. <laughs> and I was like, you bastard, I'm going to show this guy. And I know some of your listeners are going to say five years from now, Andrew Stotts, I remember that interview. I listened to that and I took it as a challenge. And look at me, I've been successful. Awesome. And if they want to shove it in your face, how can they do that? Where, can they, okay. find, where can they find you online? They can come to becomeabetterinvestor.net. That's where I am all the time. So, but they can find me there at, at my website. They can send me an email, um, you know, would you, would you love to hear business plans? I'm open to, I hear stuff all the time. So if you got a plan or you got an idea, send it to me, M-E, at andrewstotts.com. Okay, we'll put the link for that in the show notes. Yeah. So if you are actually planning to start a business in Thailand, you have this idea, you're going to tell them what you think about it. I'd love to. I meet people all the time looking at startups, looking at tech, looking at different things. If you send an email, if one of your listeners sends an email into my email box, I will respond. That is awesome. Yep. Thank you very much, Andrew. Is there anything else you want to give to our listeners? I think the, the biggest piece of advice from me in my life is that basically I did not come to Thailand to work in finance. I came in Thailand because I was enthralled with the opportunity, the country, the culture, because of my original exposure to Cambodia and all that. So I, what I like to say is just do what you really love to do. Try to be in the place that you really want to be and stay positive all the time. And what will happen is opportunities will open and opportunities open for me, not because I came here with a specific mission, but came here because I was interested in the country, interested in the culture. And I think if you do that, no matter how you come here, you can build a great life around what I consider to be some of the best people who have taught me compassion, understanding, not becoming a hothead and yelling at everybody to really be consider it in the way that I interact with other people. So take advantage of what ties can teach us about the way we interact with each other. And that would be my advice for everybody listening. I think that's wonderful advice. 
Awesome. Thank you very much, Andrew. My pleasure. And uh, everybody else out there, uh, we'll put the links to Andrew's books, his email, his website, all in the show notes. So if you are in any way considering investing in Thailand, starting your own business, it doesn't hurt to get another set of eyes on it. And Andrew is like a really nice guy. I think he'd love to give you some input on that. So thanks very much for joining us today. And uh, that's it for me. Sidan, do you have any parting words? No, just uh, enjoy the episode and write to us. Let us know what you thought about the episode. We'd love to hear from you. That would be, yeah, it would be great. You know, you have a, I think if you click on that iTunes logo there, right there, if you click on our, the picture, you can get to our website, leave a comment, right? We want to hear, what do you think? Who should we talk to? What should we say? What should we stop saying? Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much. See you all later. And that's it from Brood in Bangkok for this episode. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave it a five-star rating. If you would like to find out more about the show, you can go to broodinbangkok.com and the website will redirect you to more information about the podcast, show notes, and more background information about our guests and anything else you want to know about the show or me. Until next time. Until next time.